Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. The last 75 years of antidepressants have mostly focused around the serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine systems and the problems therein. Since then, there have also been discussions that it may be from a GABA system abnormality or a seizure-based or a metabolic-based or inflammatory abnormality. And to a certain degree, these have all helped us to treat and understand depressions. But an interesting thing has happened. We have shifted from the neuron to the astrocyte and the glial cells, and these are now the domains where we are looking. And of course, we can never overlook the significant role that psychodynamic issues play in depression. But despite all this, we still have too many treatment-resistant cases. Now ketamine has joined the group of antidepressants, and it's very promising. It's different. Dr. Rakesh Jain is a psychiatrist from Texas, and he's done a lot of teaching, clinical practice, and research and publishing, and he kindly joins us today to help us better understand ketamine and put it into its proper perspective. Dr. Jain, thank you so much for joining us. It's entirely my pleasure, and I loved hearing your opening because it reminds us that the landscape of psychiatry is broad and getting broader by the day. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And one term that you used many years ago in one of the lectures that I heard you give was how the scaffolding has changed. I love the concept. I love the image. Let's just jump right into it, sir. What is ketamine? What's the history? And how did it end up being a psychiatric medicine of all things? <laughs> like everything in medicine, it's a lot of serendipity. A lot of good signs and a whole lot of good observation by good people. Ketamine actually came out of the pharmaceutical world because of anesthesiologists' dislike of a drug they used to use for anesthesia called PCP. You and I think of PCP as a drug of abuse and a hallucinogen, but they actually in the 50s were using it for the induction of anesthesia. PCP was just too dirty. There were a lot of complications with it. So research chemists wanted to create a more manageable PCP. And they kept tinkering with the molecule until in 1962, the very year of my birth, by the way, they were able to formulate a chemical structure for an entity that was eminently more controllable. And that became ketamine. 62 is when it was born. But it wasn't until 1970 did it enter into the world of anesthesia. And as you know, 1970s was the tumultuous time in the history of America. And American medicine discovered the value of ketamine during the Vietnam War when they were using ketamine on the field to help soldiers who had been badly hurt. And what they discovered was not only was ketamine wildly safe, Ketamine also had dissociative properties, and it, for some reason, allowed soldiers who received ketamine not to be as anxious or as depressed. So the very first inklings that ketamine may be effective was born back then. And then the story gets even more interesting. It wasn't American psychiatrists who discovered the potential benefits of this particular chemical. It was Iranian psychiatrists who started using it to help people with depression and conversion disorders. And gradually, ketamine came into the American clinic. And ever since the 1990s, but in particular, in this particular century, 
NIMH in particular started doing trials to demonstrate its value as a rapid-acting antidepressant. And here we are today. Ketamine is very much a central part of the conversation in a psychiatrist and a nurse practitioner's office. And in addition to everything, one of its active enantiomers, which is S-ketamine, actually has now been FDA approved. So we go all the way from 1962 to today where ketamine and ketamine's daughters have done a very good job of helping our patients in psychiatry. So it brings up the question of how does it work? And as I ask that question, I actually am not quite sure if we should preface it by saying that let's introduce the concepts of the NMDA and glutamate systems. Because I think to understand better how it works, we need to have a sense of what these particular chemical systems are all about. Yes, yes. You know, we need to understand the molecular biology of our medicines in order to fully exploit them. And I'm happy to tell you what we know. And the good news is we know a lot about ketamine's mechanistic basis. It starts its action by being an antagonist to one of the receptors in the glutamate family. And that receptor's name happens to be NMDA. But what happens after NMDA antagonism occurs in the human brain? Interestingly, it's the GABAergic interneuron when an NMDA antagonist arrives that that particular interneuron becomes silent. So NMDA antagonism silences the inhibitory output from GABAergic neurons, which then allows the glutamate neurons to fire. And I mean fire. The amount of activity that's increased with NMD antagonism is a sight to behold. When that occurs, and this is where the action really gets hot, that's when we see AMPA receptor activation. AMPA, by the way, is a member of the glutamate family. We see a very quick elevation of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factors, and then a whole cascade of intracellular activities occur, sometimes as quickly as within four hours, that lead to the symptomatic improvement of depression. So it's not just, if you will, the change in receptor activity. It are the changes that occur inside the neuron that seem to lead to both a morphological change, that means a structural change, and also the symptomatic change in our patients who have depression. This is so important to understand as it takes us into a paradigm shift. My group of physician friends, when we went to school, and I think for many people, we tend to think about it as post and presynaptic receptors of the receptors moving and becoming more sensitive and less sensitive, moving the monoamines in and out and across the synapse. We're in a different domain. Not that those don't have a role, as we said earlier, but we've moved inside the cell, like you just said. What a shift. What a shift. What a shift, indeed. It's okay to knock on the door. When you go visit a friend, it's okay to knock on the door. And it's okay for the friend to come meet you at the door. But the real friendships develop when you sit down in the living room or you go to the back patio and barbecue together. I'm just using that as a metaphor to agree with you that the real action is not just inside the cell. At the very level of synaptogenesis, it's the creation of these protein structures 
inside the neuron that allow for better communication between various members of the neuronal family of the human brain because depression truly does diminish it. So there is the belief in the field that these drugs, the glutamatergic drugs we're talking about, but perhaps even the GABAergic drugs that work intracellularly may go beyond just symptom control to perhaps even addressing the very disease, the very pathology of the disease that you and I call major depression. People might be asking, rightly so, that isn't glutamate an amino acid, just a plain old-fashioned amino acid? Is it an issue of regulating the amount of glutamate that's the issue or the production? Yeah. Now, that's a very good question because glutamate, not until about 25-some years ago, wasn't even recognized as a neurotransmitter because it is so ubiquitous in the human brain. So the thought was, if it is found everywhere, it cannot possibly be a neurotransmitter. And it's a fascinating story as to how long it took for medical science to recognize that glutamate actually is the number one neurotransmitter in the human brain. It is the number one excitatory neurotransmitter in the human brain. And I can understand the confusion that we clinicians have because most of us who are perhaps in our 50s and 60s never ever got a single lecture on glutamate. But by now, the level of knowledge we have about neurotransmitter, the glutamate neurotransmitter is profound. We do not, however, believe that ingesting glutamate orally is the key to reversal of the disease. So it's not necessarily a more production issue. What does appear to be the case is a hypo function, so a decreased functioning of the glutamate trafficking. That means how much is the presynaptic neuron and the postsynaptic neuron firing? What is the signal to noise ratio? Because the pathology appears to be there. And that's why ketamine appears to be so interesting. It does not seem to either increase or decrease the actual amino acid levels. What it seems to do is improve the firing of the presynaptic neuron so that the AMPA receptor gets adequately dosed in the neurotransmitter, and that creates the postsynaptic cascade of benefits that you and I clinically see as benefits to, say, depression or anxiety or suicidality. One of the things that constantly I'm asked is, why does it work so quickly? And then I, I have one patient in particular says, and why don't I need to take it every day? You have a smart patient, sir. Why does it work so fast? We will look at that question. And why do I not need to take it continuously will be the second question we should examine. So let's turn our attention to why is it so fast? The answer to that is crystal clear. The NMDA receptor and the AMPA receptor are not G-protein-linked receptors. They do not need the second messenger system. Both of them are ionic receptors. An ionic receptor literally means that the activation or deactivation of that receptor happens in milliseconds when a plug, sometimes calcium or sometimes a magnesium plug, is removed, which allows for chloride, 
to rush into the cell within milliseconds. It doesn't even take a full second for it to happen. When you do get a depolarization, when chloride rushes into a neuron, then you see an action potential. All of these are big words. But at the end of the day, what we clinicians need to perhaps absorb is activation or deactivation of an ionic receptor like NMDA or AMPA will be quick. Therefore, dear clinician, don't wait weeks or months for the activity. You literally wait hours at the most. The second question that your patient is asking is, why do I have to take this only on occasion rather than the typical model in psychiatry, which is take your medications once a day? And the reason for that is also when these ionic changes happen that we just talked about, that's on the surface of the neuron. By creating that change on the surface of the neuron, what we end up with is a profound burst of activity inside the neuron. These elevation in pro-synaptogenetic proteins are not just immediate, they are sustained sometimes for days, possibly even for a week or two. And there's simply no reason. There simply is no reason to reapply the NMD antagonist again. Are well addressed not just by clinical studies, but also by hardcore science that help us understand why these drugs are fast and why they have sustained activity even after they are dosed intermittently. One of the other thoughts that I think needs to be touched on when you use the term big words, let's introduce two other big words, and that's neuroplasticity and synaptogenesis. What role yeah. do these concepts have in the treatment of, of depression? Did they exist before the ketamine-type drugs, or is it something unique to the ketamine-type drugs? The concept of synaptogenesis and neurogenesis and the concept of neuronal plasticity have been with us for a while, but because we haven't had very good interventions to actually create those changes, our field has under-discussed. But it is true, ketamine in particular really brought these words and phrases and concepts to the everyday vocabulary of the American psychiatrist. So why don't we dive into that just for a moment? As we look at neuroplasticity, that term actually is incredibly accurate. The need of the central nervous system to adapt to changing levels of stress and demand is the hallmark of successful living. So it's not that we need a big brain. It's actually not that a bad brain is necessarily a small brain. The key to successful life, to living without depression at a biochemical level, is to flex with what your needs are. For example, if you don't need that many receptors on your cell surface because things are going well, the healthy brain actually sheds those receptors. You live in Florida and I live in Texas, but if you and I were in, say, Michigan today, most of the trees out in the parks would be, they will be de-arborized. The leaves would have fallen. So the question is, is that an unhealthy state? And it's not. It's the adaptation of the tree to the weather. And when the time is right and when the needs are greater, the tree will sprout its leaves again. That is a wonderful analogy of how to think of neuroplasticity, a tree that can grow leaves and a tree that can shed leaves at the right time is a healthy tree. In depression, our neurons 
get pretty good at shedding their leaves, in this case, synapses, dendrites, but they're not so good at regrowing. And what ketamine appears to do, and this fact, what I'm about to state, is incontrovertible. The evidence is really too strong to not be able to make the statement with huge amount of confidence. What ketamine is able to do is actually promote the growth of dendrites and extrasynapses. That's why the concept of neuroplasticity will forever be intimately linked with therapy with ketamine. It takes me back, and I'm sure a fair number of listeners, to my initial courses in human physiology, brain neurology, Mm -hmm. that once a neuron was born, it matured. If it got sick, it could never be repaired. It was over. It was done. This is a very different approach to things. And it's chilling because it's so powerful. Isn't it wonderful to be wrong at the right time in our life? So you and I were taught that once you lose it, you've lost it permanently. That does not appear to be the case because at least in the disease state of major depression, there isn't profound evidence that we actually lose our neurons. What we do lose are really are the dendrites, the connections, these synapses, these hyper-communicated synapses that our neurons have, those do shrivel. So the tree in the dead of winter can look like it's dead, but just in a few months, it can re-arborize. And that is the new concept in psychiatry. And it's a very hopeful concept. In other words, even our patients who have been depressed for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, God forbid that doesn't happen, but you and I both know it can happen. There is the very real possibility that with the right interventions, we could not just change the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology of the brain, but we could also symptomatically reverse the disease. I will borrow what you just said and state it in a different way. Yes, this is a very hopeful time for our patients with acute or chronic depression. It is, and the biochemistry, and shall we just clump it together, the biology of what we're seeing is phenomenal, but I'd like to spend a few minutes with some of the practical mechanical aspects of taking ketamine. It's confusing. A lot of people see it in the form of the nasal spray. Some people see it in form of IV infusions. What's the difference? Is it the same drug? Why are there two formats? <laughs> it's often a clinician's preference, but it is exactly the same drug. Certainly, intranasally, one could use esketamine, uh, which is branded as bravado, which, by the way, is one half of ketamine. Ketamine is esketamine and r-ketamine, obviously. But your question had to do with route of administration. So IV is often preferred in clinical studies because you have 100% bioavailability. It's often preferred by ketamine clinics, because those are often run by clinicians who have a background in getting a lot of IV medications, like emergency room doctors or anesthesiologists. And it's a perfectly legitimate and valid way to give a medication. By the same token, some of us prefer intramuscular, particularly in the world of psychiatry, where we do not have a great deal of comfort putting in peripheral venous lines. We don't necessarily have the instrumentation for oxygen monitoring, for example, or 
some kind of device to offer a steady drip to a patient. We don't, so we use IM. But then there's a large group of clinicians who actually prefer intranasal or they prefer sublingual. It's exactly the same drug. The bioavailability, though, can be very variable. It will be very important at this time for me to alert clinicians. There isn't a reason to believe one is superior than the other. Many of us use sublingual ketamine as a facilitator of psychotherapy. If you use ketamine IV, the person is simply not available cognitively to engage in much psychotherapy. So it depends on the context. But all of these routes of administration have their own unique strengths and weaknesses. A lot depends on the clinician's experience and expertise and comfort. But I will say this in conclusion, all of these routes of administration can be appropriate in the right patient. The ketamine, the nasal spray, right now is the only one that's FDA approved and it is for major depression. One of the things that we've learned over the course of, what, 50 years now, 70 years of typical Mm -hmm. antidepressants is that many of these antidepressants overlap. They can be used for OCD, trichotillomania, atypical depressions, reactive depressions perhaps, anxiety disorders and the like. What do you suspect, and and I realize it's a bit of prognostication, (laughs) but ketamine will... Is it going to, do you think, as, as best as you can prognosticate, to use the word again, where it's going to be in another five years, 10 years? Any sense of that? I do. I have a very strong sense that while perhaps about 10% or so of psychiatry-centric clinicians are currently comfortable with and using ketamine, I think in the next five years, it will be in the 50 to 75% range. And I have a couple of reasons for feeling this way or thinking this way. The first is, there are so many of our patients who don't respond to traditional monoaminergic medications, and we are fairly desperate to look for other treatment options. And ketamine becomes a relatively cheap, readily available, and readily safe to use intermittent treatment. We certainly need more education, and I think podcasts like we're doing today will go We go a long way educating our colleagues about the potential for this particular form of therapy. I suspect many clinicians who have an interest in ketamine will seek out formal courses in how to utilize this medication, perhaps even obtain mentorship from more experienced clinicians. I actually predict that in about five years, the use of monoaminergic medications will be on the decline, and the use of glutamatergic and GABAergic medications will be on a sharp ascent. So we are in the midst of a very significant transition. But the question does come up again. So people on the street use ketamine as a drug of abuse. They call it special mm-hmm. K, other things. If it's the same molecule... Why do some people use it as a drug of misuse? They have hallucinations, dissociative elements. Where do we connect all of these so it's safe to use? Just some thoughts on the whole notion, for example, of the dissociative elements that occur very often when someone is treated with ketamine. What's that all about? I like your question. It it really kind of puts the finger on the sore point here, which is, Is ketamine entirely safe with no abuse potential, or is it something to be entirely afraid of because it does have abuse potential? Which way should we go? 
And obviously, this the way we've learned to live with opioids, the way we've learned to live with benzodiazepines, the way we've learned how to live with classic antidepressants like SSRIs. We don't do either. We don't assume that it's going to be good for everyone and safe for everyone or it's going to harm everyone and be dangerous to everyone. So you're completely right, my friend. Ketamine does have abuse potential in some people. It does not appear to be extremely high, but it is absolutely an issue. Why do people turn to it? I think you're right. Part of it is as a dissociative. Part of it is because of hallucinogenic properties. But very often what I've been seeing is people turn to it or have turned to it sometimes by finding it on the streets to treat their own depression or treat their own anxiety. But because they didn't know how to use it therapeutically and because we don't even know when they buy a powder called Special K, what the heck is in it? We don't know what's in it. And as a result, they run into a lot of problems. It's true. Now, Let's put that into context, but let's also recognize that the majority of the high-quality data that has come to us in the world of ketamine has not come to us from biased sources or occasionally biased sources, such as the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, the pharmaceutical industry has had zero interest in ketamine, none, none that I've ever seen. The interest I have seen has come mostly from NIMH and has mostly come from independent researchers like myself. I've published two papers now on the use of ketamine, one intravenously and one intramuscularly, with no funding whatsoever from any resources. And there what we are finding is under careful use, appropriate careful use, ketamine can be a real game changer, not just for treatment-resistant depression, but also sometimes treatment-resistant anxiety disorders. And the final point I will leave you with is, if ketamine does have the potential to be used intermittently, and we don't see weight gain with it, we don't see sexual dysfunction with it, one is then tempted to perhaps not just use these medications in treatment refractory situations, but also in situations where you need very quick onset of action, and also you want to minimize So for a whole variety of reasons, I actually do remain very enthusiastic about ketamine, but at the same time, I am entirely unwilling to abandon even a piece of the traditional psychopharmacology that we have been using. And to include as an extension to what you just said, there is, from the people who are the, the better ketamine treatment providers, continuous talk about the necessity of a good relationship between the provider and the patient, almost a psychotherapeutic style relationship. It brings us together with the totality of our lives. What I'm afraid of is that too many people will see ketamine as just another quick and easy pill to take. My depression's gone and it's done. I I wish it was that simple. It may sometimes be that simple if it's purely biologic, but rarely is anything in our lives purely biologic. Your thoughts Mm. on that? Yes, no daylight between you and I whatsoever, not even the tiniest bit. There are some people, I would say perhaps in the 10 to 15 person zone, that I found that with, let's just use ketamine as an example, that's all they needed. And it's a miraculous, and I have no other words to describe it, it's a miraculous turnaround of their depression. 
But that is not true for the majority of people. In the majority of people, ketamine does assist. It sometimes assists in a way that other traditional therapies haven't. But these folks do best in exactly what you're describing, a relational context. They also do best with combined psychotherapies, particularly ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. That is a very fine pairing, if you will, with ketamine therapy, as well as internal family systems therapy, so IFS therapy, but also CBT. And by the way, also psychoanalytic therapy. So all kinds of therapies pair very nicely with ketamine therapy. And I share your deep concerns about perhaps an overselling of the concept that if you have any stress, if you have any depression, just come into my infusion center and within six infusions, your life will be miraculously turned around. I also worry about that move. And several of these clinics are, they really are advertising themselves in a way that makes me quite uncomfortable. Calling ketamine a wellness drug, a relaxation drug, that does worry me. But even as I'm articulating that, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are very good infusion clinics who do take a medical model of the disease and a medical model of the therapy. And most of my good friends who run infusion clinics around the nation completely accept the fact, they really do, that combining various forms of psychotherapies with ketamine therapy is the only royal road to success. And should any of the listeners today run into a clinic that de-emphasizes that, that's not a clinic you should be referring patients to. I so agree with you. This is a fascinating discussion, and we are just touching on the real surface of a major change in the tools that the mental health community has to help people who are suffering. Dr. Jane, again, sir, thank you for explaining a very complex topic in a way that's understandable. I thank you very much. It is entirely my pleasure. As medicine evolves, as psychiatry evolves, we're going to have to grapple with complex issues. We want to grapple with complexity because the diseases we deal with are challenging. And ketamine really is going to force us to be a big thinker and to accept broader concepts into our thinking as you articulated with the very well thought out and pointed questions you asked me. So let's continue this dialogue. Our patients are waiting for us to learn more and more about emerging therapies. And I must also tell you this back in return. I very much enjoyed our conversation. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, our pleasure. And the answer is yes. When it's appropriate that we do an update, we'll do it. Thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you.